I'm Francesca Millican-Slater and welcome to set three of stories to tell in the middle of the night. I tell you tales that aren't always about the night, but carry a sense of the night of being awake when no one else is, and rest when the sleep won't come. The things that keep us awake, frustrations, regrets, urges, lovers, love, loss, and the found... They are stories I tell myself when I can't find my sleep. You can find all available episodes to download at iTunes Podcast or where you usually get your podcasts. This week, it's part one of The Losses, The Found and The Lost. The ghosts that come crawling in at night, the people, the things we have lost, but We'll be hearing stories from people who have found a way to combat loss, found sleep, or something they never really wanted in the first place. Today, we've got tales of dead dogs and pork pies, but first, let me keep you occupied with the woman who longed for her ex-lover's lullaby in Sleep Girl. She couldn't sleep a wink without her, which was difficult, as they had long since fallen out of love and separated as a couple, but, like a child needs a blanket or an old teddy bear, this girl needed to hear the measured breathing grunts and groans of her ex-lover's nighttime sounds to go to sleep. Although they had separated romantically, they had one of those relationships where they still lived in the same house, Financially, you know, it made sense, although they both suspected it was more to do with a laziness in the division of shared purchased items. This continued cohabitation made starting new relationships problematic. It's always hard to explain living with your ex, and it's always hard to explain to your ex bringing someone home. So they didn't, so as not to hurt each other, yet. During the day, they remained awkward, clunking and fumbling around each other with a misplaced, part-remembered familiarity. Come night, they went their separate ways. One woman not sleeping awake, clock ticking. The other, having no problem sleeping without her ex by her side. In fact, she had no trouble sleeping at all. She was such a deep sleeper that she had been known to miss whole days, weeks to sleep, despite phone calls, alarms, knocks at the door, break-ins, breakdowns, break-ups and parties. There was the time that a small fire did nothing to wake her. Even the briefest of breaks, food, toilet trips, into the world of the waking, did not stop her returning to her bed. It was her first love, sleep. The not-sleeping woman, relying on the depth of her ex-lover's slumber, unfit and at the end of her wits in deprivation of rest, crept across the landing, creaked open the door to her ex-lover's room and sat lightly on her bed, pulled out her phone, laid it by her old lover's lips and pressed audio record digitally storing all those grunts and groans and snores for two minutes she crept back to her own room laid out pillows in the shape of a body pulled up the covers set the sound to loop press play 
the snores and snorts and grunts and groans. But her mind stayed active and her eyes open with no warm body from which the sounds exhaled. She couldn't fool herself. So now, just for her own sanity, just to get some sleep, she creeps across the landing, creaks open the door, folds back the covers and folds herself around her old lover. She doesn't touch her. She's not weird. She sets the alarm and leaves, covering her tracks so no clues are found. Well, there's a method to finding your sleep if counting sheep or kisses hasn't worked. Though... Please do act responsibly when sleeping with your ex. We humans can find comfort in the most curious of places, in Lucky. Dave, his dog, was an ugly fucker. Big, lumbering, huge open jaw, constant dribble pouring out, legs too long for his body. He had the look of aggression about him, but none of the dedication required to pull off an act of attack. Dave quite liked to be petted. People rarely did. Dave was also the only reason Roger ever left the house. Dave would shamble his ways through towers of magazines and newspapers, empty boxes and assorted wrappers to where Roger was sitting in the single armchair that he kept clear. And Dave would start. It was supposed to be a bark, an encouragement, but like everything that Dave did, it was slightly off. Dave did not know he was ugly and had no awareness of his own size. But that noise was a signal to go for a walk, twice a day, down the road, up the hill, around the park, sometimes a spot of ball, although Dave tended to just nudge a ball rather than pick it up because of his protruding bottom teeth. No one had wanted Dave, and Roger didn't want anyone. Without Dave, he'd probably never leave the house, survive on delivery and let his collections get dirty and go to waste. He really would become one of those people. Pushing through the stuff, out the door with Dave pulling on the lead, he was aware of the looks he got. The crossing to the other side of the road, the side tuts and side looks, the low voice but loud enough to hear indignation of, I'm sure that's a banned breed. He was always happy when Dave would take just that moment to crouch on the pavement and take a massive shit. Head over shoulder in that dog version of a coquette's look, tail spasming, poo piling up. Dave is a big dog. And those people would shake their heads, tut again, And as Roger bent to collect Dave's still warm excretions, he'd see a look of disappointment that he'd picked it up, not left it there for them to confirm their suppositions. Cheerily, he'd wave at them, shitbag in hand, arseholes. At least Dave was a proper dog, not like these little yappy fucks in jumpers and hairbands taking dainty shits bred to the point of uselessness. 
Bags, stone, canal, he thought. He was sure that Dave would agree if Dave could agree, but Dave was busy trying to smell the rear end of a silky setter as the owner pulled it anxiously away. Dogs have become an epidemic. There never used to be that many. Um, While he realised that him and Dave were part of this, he'd acquired Dave for medical reasons, both his and Dave's, not to take fucking pictures of. Out into the park lead off and Dave ran through the bushes and out to the other side barking up into trees at unseen prey in the branches above outside he was surprisingly agile and light on his feet for a dog with a barrel as a body Roger often wondered what was in Dave whip it maybe Dave had thrown himself through some more bushes when Roger heard a wailing shit Roger pushed his way through the gap that Dave had left and found a woman kneeling on the floor next to the upturned prone body of a small dog in a red jumper. Dave was nowhere to be seen. The woman was crying uncontrollably, still clutching the lead attached to the still dog. Red-rimmed eyes looked to him. A huge, wild, rabid dog came from nowhere and went to attack Lucky. Lucky? Roger asked. Yes, yeah, she's called Lucky. Right. And then this dog is terrible, terrifying. I was scared for myself, leapt at us, and Lucky, Lucky just rolled over in fear and... Died, Roger offered, stuffing Dave's lead into his pocket, silently asking Dave to continue doing whatever he was doing away from here. Roger tried to comfort the woman... For once, Dave, do not come back. Not yet. Roger told the woman that this all sounded awful and that she must be in shock. She told in more tears of having to tell the kids that she didn't know what to do. Hearing the familiar bark not far off, Roger set himself to action. If she found out that Dave was the wild, rabid animal that had scared her bejumper dog to death, Dave came bursting through the bushes. The woman screamed, holding the doggy corpse to her. Stay, Roger shouted. Dave trotted forward, tail wagging. Leave it. Get away. Roger had never talked to Dave in this manner before. Dave slunk back into the bushes, tail between his legs. The woman was hyperventilating. Unclipping the lead, Roger gently took Lucky, the dog's still warm body from her. She could never know Dave was his. Dave would be reported, he would be reported, he could not lose Dave. She was muttering that she didn't know what to do with the body and what would the kids say and that she'd be blamed, couldn't look after the dog. He smelt something familiar on her, on her breath, in her hair, despite the mid-morning time. Her hands were shaking. He took a step back. Where do you live? Tell me where you live and I'll take care of Lucky. Make sure she finds a peaceful resting place and... I'll let you know. Does that sound okay? With unseeing eyes, the woman nods, thanks him, and walks away, empty lead in hand. 
Fuck. Fuck. Dave. Roger sniffed at the dead dog in the jumper. Perhaps he should give it mouth to mouth. Tiny dogs have tiny hearts, and this one had given up. Dave! Dave! Dave comes bounding from the bushes at once, having forgotten the previous interaction. Dave. Dave jumps up, smells, then licks the small corpse, whining. That night, Roger takes pictures of Lucky the dead dog and Google image searches for dogs in that area. He finds options of what he's looking for. While Dave winds around Roger's feet, he digs a hole in his back garden, taking the red jumper off the now stiff corpse with some difficulty. He lays the dog naked as nature intended and covers her fur in dirt and soil until she's just a mound of earth. With a politeness and cooing that he didn't think himself capable, he spends the next morning visiting farms and houses, asking questions about age and breeding. Dave stays at home. Taking the red jumper as a sizing guide, Roger finds one that fits it just perfect. The shrill barks and yaps scrape through him, so he puts her in a box and closes the lid, drives the address that the weeping woman had given him. She opens the door with still, red eyes, dressing gown and weak smile. Oh, it's you. The kids have had to stay home from school. They are so upset about Lucky. Well, he beams in a way that feels uncomfortable on his face. I put her in the shed last night, the woman swallows a shudder. And when I woke up this morning, I looked in the box and the woman looks up. Roger holds the box, opens the lid. She's alive. She really is lucky. The dog leaps out of the box and starts to dance around, feet yapping. The woman picks her up and the dog licks her face. Oh, lucky, lucky. She's even got the same bark. Yap, yap, yap. Yeah, I think she must have been stunned into shock by that large, ugly dog. (laughs) Now, look! The kids come down. There is a general festive atmosphere. He is invited in for a cup of tea. Lucky Mark II pisses on the carpet. Everyone laughs. And the family ask him questions about himself. Tell him he shouldn't have to walk alone. Does, Does he not have a dog? He should get a dog. He pretends... Dave does not exist. Sorry, Dave. Then he must come and walk lucky with them, with her, as he is her saviour. Roger nods in passive agreement. What uh, time do you usually go? Roger asks, making a mental note to find a new place to walk Dave. So now, on Wednesdays and Fridays, he goes for a walk and a talk with the woman, lucky the imposter, and no Dave. Other dog walkers stop and shout, wave cheerily at them. She says that Lucky has changed a little since the ordeal, but she knows it's her Lucky a dog owner just knows, you know? Sometimes he goes round theirs for dinner. Doesn't tell Dave, it feels like an act of betrayal, but he saves him the scraps. Every now and again, Lucky Mark II catches his eye curls her lip in her little red jumper with a look that says, I know what you did. I know what you did.
We're both imposters here. Thanks to Matt for that, if he's listening. I think people love dead pet stories. It's a good icebreaker if conversation fails you in a new group or you are on an awkward date. From the chinchilla that ran up the chimney to the cat that was skinned for fake Arctic fox fur, allegedly, R.I.P. Buffy Mer, or all those escaped hamsters that never returned still scratching around in the bowels of a house. When my mum's dog, Fergus, died, he came back, complete with his name on a brass plaque as a box of ashes that we were scattering for a good 18 months. It was a big dog. First, she had a service for him with the kids from round the corner, and still there were some of him left. So I tied a lead around the box and took him for a walk, blowing ashes up his favourite hill near Whippy Woods, my mum following in her funeral hat. Still, there were some of him left. So, my mum asked him where he wanted to go. She spoke to him when he was alive, so there was no reason she wouldn't when he was dead. And he said, back home to Scotland. He was from Scotland. That's why they called him Fergus. So, she took the last of him in a sandwich bag and left him scattered across a well-known beauty spot there, I'm still not utterly convinced it wasn't an act of environmental vandalism. Continuing on an animal theme, in the found and the lost, from animals in boxes to animals in other kinds of receptacles, a man desperately trying to impress in pork pie holer. He was a pork pie holer. On the factory line, on the conveyor belt, if you've eaten a standard pork pie in the last ten years, it's likely he's put the hole into it. Now, while they have machines for putting in the carved-up meat in eyelashes and hooves, etc., holing a pie is still a manual job. You put your hole in the pie to let the steam out and send it around the conveyor belt to... the people who never really looked him in the eye. They had their jokes and their banter that he was never really part of. So, in order to make them laugh, in order to be part of the gang, he spent two days making a perfect pastry penis from the pastry of a pork pie and sent it around the conveyor belt. Bells rang, wheels screeched, machines came to a halt. The pork pie forewoman, short and clipboarded, held up his pastry penis. Who did this? She asked. I I did. (laughs) He was particularly proud of the carved-in pubic hairs. What is it? It's a pastry penis. What? It's a pastry penis? Right, scotch eggs, now. 
They all watched him do the walk of shame to the scotch eggs in the basement. No one wanted to go to scotch eggs. You put your hand in a vat of ground-up meat to make a sort of mitten, and then you stand in front of a machine that ping-pongs out already shelled hard-boiled eggs. Catch them in the meat, wrap it up, and roll it on. Mitten of meat, catch the egg, roll it up, pass it on. Mitten of meat, catch the egg, roll it up, pass it on. Mitten of meat, catch the egg, roll it up, pass it on. And all the while, tiny meat particles were flying off onto his hairnet, his cap, onto his face. The ground up bits of animals. But... He always took pride in what he did. Men of meat, catch the egg, roll it up. And it wasn't so bad, really, scotch eggs. It's a different action to poking pork pies. And then the scotch egg foreman points to a bin. A bin, a wheelie bin, that sits underneath a chute down which all the excess offal and offcuts falls into. The bits that don't even get put into a brunch bar go. Yeah, can you take that bin across the car park to the to the big bin, the other side, yeah? Out the fire door. No problem, no problem. Out the fire door, into the open, the factory stood by the sea. They were waiting for him. Red-tipped beaks, wingspans five times the span of a man's hand, ducking and diving, circling, nibbling the meaty morsels from his hair and his face all the way across the car park and back. From the factory window, it looked like he had a coat made of feathers. He lay down in the changing room and pretended to faint in the hope that he'd be sent home early. Forty-five minutes face first on the floor. People's footsteps walking over him. Thank you to Martin for his tale of loss of hope in a pastry penis, however perfectly formed. You've been listening to Stories to Tell in the Middle of the Night, The Losses, Part 1, The Found and Lost. Next time, The Losses, Part 2, The Left Behinds, the people that you can never really forget come creeping in at night. If you have enjoyed this Stories to Tell, please let us know by rating, reviewing, tweeting, messaging us. You can visit storiestotellinthemiddleofthenight.com or tweet us at middlenighttale. We are originally releasing the episodes weekly over nine weeks from May 2018, but if you're listening from the future, hello. All nine sets of stories are available to download at iTunes Podcast or where you usually get your podcasts. They have been released in an order which references the next episode, but they don't have to be listened to in that order. They are made so that each set of stories stands on its own, although if you like them, I would listen to episode nine last. Its theme is hope as morning breaks, and that's a good thing to listen to last. 
We have also released a selection of BSL video interpretations of these podcasts. These can be found at storiestotellinthemiddleofthenight.com. Stories to Tell started as a theatre show, born from ideas of people, friends, awake and up in pain or anxiety and not being able to sleep. These stories are made to be listened to when you are awake, a light still on or not. Although I have been told that I have a voice that sends dogs to sleep, in a good way, but I think... It is written and voiced by me, Francesca Millican Slater. Sound design is by Ian Armstrong with podcast support from Mark Steadman, produced by Pippa Frith, supported by Arts Council England. Copies of the original theatre text are published by Ink Concrete. You can buy or download at inkconcrete.com or on Amazon. Stories to Tell in the Middle of the Night, the theatre show, was originally commissioned by Birmingham Repertory Theatre and was supported by Arts Council England, China Plate and the Sir Barry Jackson Trust. It was produced by Pippa Frith. I'm Francesca Millican-Slater and you can find out more about what I do at francescamillicanslater.co.uk. Ian is Ian with two eyes at ianarmstrong.net Pippa is at pippafrith.co.uk and Mark Stedman is at stedman.io. Listen out for a bonus episode where myself, Ian and Pippa will be in conversation about sound, the show, how it became a podcast and if Ian has been recording cutting his toenails. <laughs>